I'm Paul from Thirst Counselling and welcome to a Thirst Counsellor podcast, a series of blogs, readings and audio meanderings through the world of mental health and well-being. Hello there and welcome to episode 18 of the Thirst Counsellor podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about loss and bereavement. So um, with this episode, there's a little bit of a, an advisory uh, comment about how you need to look after yourself and that if you've experienced loss and bereavement, uh, that you might be you might be mostly triggered by some of the some of the issues that are covered in here, uh, and also some of the context of this issue will might not be suitable for children and young people. So please be aware of that when you're listening to it, say in the car or anything like that. And the reason why I picked this this topic to talk about is because uh, I guess out of all topics around mental health and well-being, loss and bereavement is probably uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, issue that kind of comes out in my uh, in my practice and in my day job and just in life uh, on a general basis. Loss and bereavement comes over on a not on a daily basis, but on a regular basis. Uh, and what I wanted to look at today was how it can impact on people uh, in very, very different ways. Uh, some people can kind of roll with it quite healthily and some people can become quite stuck and quite entrenched in, in loss and bereavement. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and a little bit about some of the uh, models of work that you might use to work with people around loss and bereavement. Um, whilst thinking about it, I was thinking about the first bereavement that I ever experienced. And it goes back to primary school. Uh, and the only thing I can kind of remember about it is my nana uh, on my father's side who lived in uh, in Dover in Kent. We used to go and visit her. Um, and the only thing I can remember about visiting Nana in Kent was uh, there was lots of fields nearby. Uh, we used to go r- running around in the fields and I had a couple of friends over there. Um, and this is like eight, nine years old. But what I remember about the time that she died was there was a, a puppet, a hand puppet in a in the local news agents that I really wanted. Um and I'd asked my mum and dad for it for ages. And I think my dad had told me that, you know, he'd buy it me. The following week when he got paid, this was when, you know, he used to get paid on a weekly basis. And then uh, I remember getting told that my nana had died. Uh, and I was still wanting this puppet. And I remember being upset and crying and my dad telling me off saying you're upset over this puppet when your nana's died and I was like no no I'm upset over my nana dying and because they decided they couldn't get at me this I think it's because my dad was going going away to the funeral I wasn't going um but I remember at the time and that you know I was actually upset over this puppet I wanted this puppet uh and I was really annoyed I didn't understand why I couldn't have the puppet Um, but I felt suddenly felt embarrassed that I was crying over this puppet and I wasn't crying over uh, my nana dying. Um, and I wasn't massively close to her. Um, but it, it was 
you know, very, very awkward moment and that, you know, where I'm reflecting back on it now, I realised it was because I didn't understand really about death, about loss and about the permanence of it all. Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a very awkward time, I guess is the only thing. And, and, and now I kind of feel that what I was experiencing was uh, that sense of embarrassment over, like, I want that toy. Uh, and I don't really care, it's not my fault that this person's died. Why can't I have my toy? I did end up getting the, the puppet uh, a week or so later. Um, but that was my first experience of loss and bereavement. Uh, and I've had many, many since then. Um, and I've been affected by them in different ways. Uh, and I'll probably talk about some of them as we kind of go through this podcast. Um but welcome, uh, welcome to the new episode, and I hope you get something valuable from it, or, or have an opportunity to kind of pause and reflect uh, on on how things have kind of impacted on you. The actor Keanu Reeves once said, "Grief changes shape, but it never ends." Working with grief and loss, people work in many different ways to support young people and adults with bereavement and loss. There are just a couple of models that I wanted to talk to you about. First model that I wanted to talk to you about was the cycle of grief. Uh, the cycle of grief, or the five stages of grief as it's also known, uh, was developed by uh, a Swiss psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in her 1969 book on death and dying. Um, and that book was inspired by her work with terminally ill patients. Uh, the Cycle of Grief talks about the five stages that people go through when they experience grief. Um, and it's commonly known by the acronym DABDA, D-A-B-D-A, and it stands for Denial, Anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So it talks about the idea that when we first experience a loss or grief, we go into that feeling of denial, that experience of denial where we deny that it's real, we deny that it's happening, uh, we try and avoid the situation. The next stage that follows that is uh, feeling angry, angry at, uh, maybe angry at the self, might be looking at blame, uh, blaming somebody or something, angry at God, angry at the situation, uh, but a, a rage and a, and a confusion and a feeling of anger. And it might be for some people in that where, you know, people are dying or are going to die, where people go into uh, a form of bargaining and that, well, if I change my behaviour, perhaps uh, this will make it all right. Or if I go to church on Sundays, uh, or pray more, uh, then God will make it all right. So there's a form of bargaining that goes on. Uh, and then what follows then is a feeling of depression, going into uh, the pits of depression, feeling very, very low, very, very sad quite often and, you know, for, for long periods of time. And then the final stage of these five stages is acceptance, where people accept the death or the upcoming death are able to kind of process it and move forward with their life. And it was believed for the longest time, and it's still talked about today, about people going through the stages of grief and 
whenever grief or bereavement is spoken about, you'll you'll hear people say, "Oh yes, they're uh, you know they're, they're they're going through denial at the moment, uh, or they're they're going through the anger part of the five stages. Uh, they need to get to acceptance." It was later on that Kubler Ross said that she wished she'd laid it out differently because she wanted to kind of explain to people that people don't go in through them in that order. They don't go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Uh, they may skip some of the stages. They may uh, revisit some of the stages. Uh, they may go through them in different ways, in different orders. Another model, which is a, uh, a more modern model that's getting used a lot more these days, is the dual process of coping with grief, which was developed by Strub and Schutt in 2001. And this talks about the fact that we, we are often in two stages of grief and loss. We're in a stage of grief-orientated or restoration-orientated. So we go into these two processes, these two uh, polar opposites of each other, where we, at one time, we will be in the loss-orientated uh, feeling of being upset, being sad, being down. Uh, and that's that's where the grief work can take place. Um, you know, we will be in avoidance, we'll be... Uh, moving away from uh, talking to people and that will become quite isolated. Loss-orientated responses include grieving and crying. You're thinking about your loved one and then that strong desire to curl up under the covers and never come out. Or it might be that we then go into the restoration-orientated stage and that's where we start attending to life changes. Uh, we start doing new things. Uh, we find ourselves distracted from our grief. Uh, or we might be trying to avoid our grief as well. And when we think of uh, restoration-orientated responses, it might be about uh, learning new skills. Uh, it might be for some people, they have to learn how to manage their family finances. They might start to form new relationships. Uh, they might start taking on roles that the loved one may have left vacant. Um, start becoming able to focus on day-to-day -day tasks uh, and get at least a temporary relief from the emotional drain of your loss. And it, and it seems like this makes more sense for people now, uh, the idea that we oscillate between these two ways of grieving. Um, Strobin should say that the bereaved should embrace this oscillation, this move in and out of the intense feeling of grief. Um, they also go on to say that you may have been oscillating between two models without realising it. Perhaps in the morning you watched television for a while while you were distracted by an interesting news story. And that's restoration orientated. And then you saw an advert that made you think of a particular memory of your loved one which made you cry. And that's loss orientated. And then after crying for a while you thought, right, I really need to clean the kitchen. And after a while, focusing on cleaning... For even the briefest of moments, you feel less focused on your pain and you've moved back into restoration. So this idea of this dual process makes more sense to us today. Because when we experience grief and loss, particularly as adults, we might feel sad, we might feel upset, we might feel angry and frustrated. 
but then we need to go to work the next day we need to take our children to school uh, it might be that the the loved one who's passed away was the person who used to take the child to ballet lessons or to football sessions and now you, you know we have to take on that role so we move back and forth between those two stages of being lost and upset uh, and also about getting on with life and part of that getting on with life is it's a break from the grief if we become entrenched within the grief that can become a very very lonely place so that's the dual process of grief which is a more widely used uh, form of working with people who are experiencing grief and loss my mother in 2012 I believe in December I'd lost my dad several years previously um, my mum had been a really really positive role model in my life a really really strong person and a fun person I learnt lots from her and had a great relationship with her as she got older she became more frail and it's quite distressing to watch someone that was so strong and so independent and so confident suddenly or over a long period of time um, become less and less that person that they were um, due to age although she was only in her 60s uh, and due to epilepsy my mum had had a, a number of seizures uh, which it was felt had, had led to a deterioration uh, in later life, as uh, she became more and more incapacitated. She'd been taken into hospital. On a number of occasions, she'd had uh, quite severe fits, uh, and she was becoming iller and iller. And when she was taken in hospital for the last time, uh, she was unconscious, and they'd put her uh, on a drip. Uh, and I used to go in and see her every day, and I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't imagine my mum not being there. All I could think about was all the times when I hadn't been there for her. Um, so I talked to her. I, I used to go in every day, once or twice uh, a day, and talk to her. Just talk about my day, talk about the things that I regretted, the things that I was embarrassed about, the things that I'd never told her. Um, she stayed in hospital for... It's about three, four weeks, and they eventually moved her off food and water. So she, she was, you know, they were allowing her to die, uh, which was a very difficult thing for me to kind of contemplate. But I continued to go in, uh, and I think it was roughly about ten days without food or water that she was um, just hanging on in there, and she was unconscious the whole time. And I would go in and I would hold her hand. Um, and I would talk to her and apologise for the things that I'd done wrong and tell her about all the things that I was going to do in life. Um, and it was very, very distressing. There was times when I felt angry and resentful at her for making me feel so distressed and frustrated. Um, and then one evening I decided to have a night off. Uh, I decided I was going to stay in with my girlfriend uh, and just relax and watch something fun on TV, uh, have something nice to eat. Um, 
then I went to bed and then in the early hours of a Thursday morning there was a phone call on my mobile tell me to come into hospital uh, and when I got into the hospital she passed away she died and it was almost ironic the day that I chose to not go and see her was the day that she chose to leave and it's almost like she waited she waited until I wasn't there to leave that's kind of how I uh, reconcile myself with it now uh, stop until the last my mum always had the last word um, and then became uh, the next few days uh, I just kind of went into an automatic mode my brothers lived elsewhere um, so I had to start making all the preparations for the funeral and I'd never done anything like that before I was lucky I had some good friends supporting me um, I did not know anything I was trying to kind of get my head around the finances my mum's finances my mum's benefits um, trying to arrange things with uh, the funeral directors and, uh, and pick a coffin and all these things that you don't imagine that you're going to have to do uh, and I cried at the funeral um, I picked some music uh, and I wrote a little speech and and she went into the crematorium and the family were there and my friends were there uh, and then she was gone I went to see a counsellor because I worked in the therapeutic field and we had access to a counsellor so I saw a counsellor because I was confused why wasn't I on my knees why wasn't I in absolute tears why wasn't I so distraught by the loss of my mother and I was very fortunate to have a counsellor who said because you've had a good death and I didn't know what she meant by a good death but what she meant was I had had that opportunity to sit with her even though she wasn't able to respond to me and tell her everything that I needed to say there was nothing left unsaid so I was really quite fortunate and as a result of that I'd already begun to process my grief to process this idea that my mother wasn't going to um, stay alive that my mum was going to pass away and I had the opportunity to say everything that needed to be said The actor William Hurt said, you cut off the capacity for grief in your life and you cut off the joy at the same time. They both come up through the same tunnel. You don't have one without the other. I was thinking about what book or television programme or film to talk about in relation to this week's topic about grief and loss. Sometimes that can be quite difficult for me to find, but every now and then something comes along that just fits so perfectly. Recently on Netflix, the new Ricky Gervais show Afterlife drops the entire first season. It's a story about Tony, a man who works for a free newspaper in a small town, whose wife died eight months previously. He's so lost in grief and loss, He's bitter and angry and frustrated at the world. He feels like he's lost all hope and joy in his world. 
It's a bittersweet comedy with some of the darkest humour that I've seen. He's cruel, he's obtuse, he's obnoxious, he's offensive, he's insulting to people. But within all this rage you can see his pain and his his utter lostness. It has moments of brilliant humour, really well observed, but at the same time it has this real difficult character that you wouldn't want to be around. There's also comic elements in it, and I would like to say, personally, the Paul Kay who plays the counsel of the grief therapist that he goes to see is the most unethical and unprofessional counsellor and I'm sure he would be stricken off any ethical body that he was ever registered with. However, the, the series itself is a brilliant observation into grief and to the lengths that people would go to. He's very much clinging on to his life. The only reason why he is alive is because he has to feed the dog. So far on the two occasions that he's contemplated taking his life, it's his dog that's pulled him back from the brink. There's a particular scene that stands out for me where he says, after being told, you can't keep talking to people the way that you do. He responds, yeah, I can. I can say anything I want to anyone I want. I can be as horrible as I want when that stops doing anything for me, I can just kill myself. It's like having a superpower. It really is the characterisation of someone who feels he has nothing to live for. So I really recommend that people go and see this series, Afterlife. It's not an easy watch, but it's very, very informative. There are times when we don't get to say the things that we need to say to the people we lose. I remember when my dad died, he'd been rushed into hospital. I'd received a a phone call at work to say that he'd collapsed and he'd been taken into hospital. So I walked out of work. I met up with my mum and my brother and we went to the hospital. He was weak and frail looking not the man that I remembered I'd never had the greatest of relationships with my dad but he'd always kind of been there, he'd always been around we said things to him, we talked to him we talked about things, we talked about him coming out of hospital and days before he'd been talking about a lump on his back and said he was a little bit worried about it my dad was a heavy drinker he drank all his life. He'd never been an aggressive man, never been a violent man. But he'd always drank. Two weeks before he died, he'd stopped going out in the evening. That was so out of character for him. And here he was in the hospital. My mum and brother had just left the room. And I sat with him and I remember clearly thinking, I should tell him I love him. And I said, no, no, I'll tell him tomorrow. That night in the early hours of that morning, 
we got the phone call from the hospital to go back to the hospital and he'd passed. So I'd never told him. I'm sure he knew. I realise that now. But at the time, I remember thinking, why didn't I take that time? Why didn't I take that moment to just say, I love you? And I carried that for quite a while. We don't always get that opportunity. So I believe we should take that opportunity whenever we can to tell the people closest to us how we feel, how much they mean to us, how much they've improved our lives, how they've helped us. Because we never know which moment will be the last. C.S. Lewis once said, part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but have to keep thinking about the fact that you suffer. And not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. I wrote a blog post last year, which you can find on my website, which is www.thirskcounselling.co.uk. And it was called Afraid Loss. Loss can be a very painful and personal thing. We're affected to our core sometimes by the reality that there's been a shift, a change in the space-time continuum. Something that was here isn't here anymore. Sometimes this loss is immediately evident and everything we see, hear or notice is like a constant reminder. A connection to something that isn't there. Like a rope tied between two trees. Then one of the trees disappears. The rope becomes slack. And when we search for the connection we come face to face with a frayed end. Someone I knew died recently. In the most tragic of ways. When I heard about it, I kind of felt numb. Like I wasn't sure how to feel. A sense that I should feel something, but it felt wrong, it didn't make sense. It was, in a very real sense, senseless. This death impacted a lot of people I knew. The lovely girl that was killed, her children, husband, her parents, and people who had known her, worked with her, or like me, had the privilege of supporting her for a short while. I had occasion to attend the funeral and was met with a sea of faces full of grief, still numb. I entered the church and made my way quietly to a seat, feeling very much like an imposter, like I shouldn't be there. On the order of service was a photograph, a simple candid shot of this young girl smiling. It was at this point that I felt the loss. I was no longer in denial and it hit me that the rope was frayed at the end and I cried. I got angry at the cruelty of it all, and it all just seemed so wrong. Loss of any kind can be so painful and so senseless. Trying to make some rationale out of something that has just stopped being is like trying to mould fog. This is why it is a process that takes time. It's not that we have come to terms with a loss. It's about how we come to terms with who we are now that the loss has taken place and still carry on. I used to think that loss was in stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. For years people thought this was how we deal with loss. Now I realise we move between feeling the loss and living our lives. 
We get up and we go to work and get angry at other drivers and laugh at jokes. Then we hear a song or catch sight of someone. But it can't be her. She. Then we think of the loss. Feel guilty for getting on with our lives and laughing. This is part of the process of grief and loss. Flitting between the rope that is secured to something sturdy and safe. And the frayed end, the senselessness of it. And then we flit again. Loss is all around us, always. Sometimes distant and sometimes very close. It is a stark reminder that all we have is this moment and that life is made up of a series of moments. We can spend so much time being afraid of loss that we forget to live and enjoy each moment that we have. By doing this, we are celebrating those we have lost. By living and yes, we will soon find ourselves at the frayed end of the rope from time to time. But as long as we hold on to that rope, we can always find our way back. So how do we get through grief? How do we get through loss? Well, first thing to remember is it's a very personal thing. No two people's grief are the same. People experience things differently because of the experiences leading up to the death. Their experiences of the, the grief process might be completely different. For when my dad passed, uh, it was it was still quite sudden and I hadn't said the things that I needed to say. However, when my mum passed, I'd had plenty of time to prepare myself, so I had two very different experiences of grief and loss. So tip number one is to own your grief and to know that it's okay and that it's a process and that it takes time, it's not a race. And tip number two is to talk to people. Talk to people about how you're feeling. Recognise that people are going to feel uncomfortable around you and, and not know what to say. Reassure them, it's okay. There's nothing they can say that's going to make it better. Just them being there. Remember to have fun. It's okay to have fun. To watch a comedy programme. Uh, to go out to a club. Uh, to tell a joke and to laugh. To hear a joke and to laugh. That's okay. You are not taking away the pain of the grief. You're having a break from it and you're entitled to that. And if the grief continues and you can't get yourself out of that feeling of depression, then it's okay to reach out and ask for help. Whether that be professionally through a therapist, through a grief counsellor, or through a support group, or just through a friend. This too passes. It takes time. Because grief is very much like a ball in a box. A Twitter user named Lauren Herschel shared an analogy about grief that was told to her by a doctor. It's called the ball and the box. So grief is like this. There's a box with a ball in it and a pain button. In the beginning, the ball is huge. You can't move the box without the ball hitting the pain button. It rattles around on its own in there and hits the button over and over. You can't control it. It just keeps hurting. Sometimes it seems unrelenting. Over time, the ball gets smaller. 
it hits the button less and less, but when it does, it hurts just as much. It's better because you can function day to day more easily. But the downside is that the ball randomly hits the button when you least expect it. For most people, the ball never really goes away. It might hit less and less, and you have more time to recover between hits, unlike when the ball was still giant. I think this is a really good description of grief. She goes on to say in a further tweet, I told my stepdad about the ball in the box. He now uses it to talk about how he's feeling. He once said, the ball was really big today. It wouldn't lay off the button. I hope it gets smaller soon. And slowly it is. So that's it for today's episode. Um, I know it, it's possibly been quite a, a difficult episode for people to listen to. Um, often when we talk about grief and loss, we can feel really quite unsettled and quite hurt and we can feel triggered as we think back to people that we've lost over the years. And it's important to remember that we, when we talk of grief and loss, we're not just talking about... Uh, the death of a, a parent or of a child or of a grandparent. Uh, we're also for some people talking about the death uh, of a family pet or at the end of something. It might be that a, a friendship's ended or a relationship's ended and that is very much a bereavement also. Also when we, when we leave a job and that we can feel bereaved and bereft of uh, the friendships and the, the colleagues that we've worked with. Or when we move house, move to another town. When there's been a significant change in our lives, we can feel as though we've lost something. So I will put some links in the show notes to organisations that deal with bereavement and loss. Uh, and I encourage you, if you have been affected by any of the subject matter, uh, to talk to people, uh, to relive uh, and talk about those memories it might have stirred up. Until next time, thank you very much. And here we are at the outro. I'd like to thank everyone who's listened. Um, it's nice to see that there's people downloading it and listening to the to the podcast. Uh, uh, gives me a reason to kind of keep going. Uh, if you if you like what I'm saying or you have any ideas or any topics, you can in- email me at info at firstcounseling.co.uk, or alternatively, you can tweet me at t underscore counselling at t underscore counselling um, I'll be back uh, in another episode talking about some other aspects of mental health and well-being uh, please feel free to review this on your podcast app and uh, give it a couple of stars uh, and if you want to share it with other people and that, if you think other people might be interested please feel free to do that um, thanks very much for listening sincerely yours a first counsellor
so that's it for today's episode. Um, I know it, it's possibly been quite a, a difficult episode for people to listen to. Um, often when we talk about grief and loss, we can feel really quite unsettled and quite hurt and we can feel triggered as we think back to people that we've lost over the years. And it's important to remember that we, when we talk of grief and loss, we're not just talking about uh, the death of a, a parent or of a child or of a grandparent. Uh, we're also, for some people, talking about the death uh, of a family pet or at the end of something, it might be that a friendship's ended or a relationship's ended. And that is very much a bereavement also. Also, when we, when we leave a job and that we can feel bereaved and bereft uh, of the friendships and the, the colleagues that we've worked with. Or when we move house, move to another town. When there's been a significant change in our lives, we can feel as though we've lost something. So I will put some links in the show notes to organisations that deal with bereavement and loss. Uh, and I encourage you, if you have been affected by any of the subject matter, uh, to talk to people, uh, to relive uh, and talk about those memories it might have stirred up. Until next time, thank you very much.